Amen. You know, when we think about even just the little phrases in songs like this, it should just cause each one of us to be in awe. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Do you realize the death being spoken of, the exchange being spoken of, is a death that would never end for those who are not in Christ? An unending death of torment is how Christ speaks about it, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And what was given so you could escape an unending death? The Son of God died on the cross to pay the debt of sinners. When you think about that, when you think what has been offered, not just pardon, but but eternity and glory with Father, Son, and Spirit, it, it really should cause you and I to, to be broken and to be so grateful, to be so full of praise for our God. Well, our, our message today is, is going to introduce you to the subject of the regulative principle in worship. Your handout will help you follow along. It's it's not necessarily going to be a, a typical sermon or two. It's going to be a tiny bit a tiny bit scholastic. It's important for us to remember the definition, the meanings of the word worship, and how it is that Christians would practice worship in our time, our time from the cross forward. Do you remember what worship is? Several weeks ago, we looked at worship from Greek words and a Hebrew word or two, and and we learned that worship is homage and service and sacrifice and reverence. These are some of the words that we can begin to frame our understanding of what worship is. We spoke about the fall of man probably a month ago. We were looking at Romans chapter 1 and we learned by looking at those verses in Romans chapter 1 that because of the fall of man, because of your fall, because of sin that, that began to dwell in your heart and in your mind from Adam forward, because of that, there was no longer a glory of God. Your ability to give glory to God was gone because of your fall in Adam. Your, your ability to, to give thanks to him as God was, was gone because of the fall in Adam. Men exchanged the glory of God for images is what we learned about sin and depravity in, in Romans chapter 1. So one of the things, which is a doctrinal thing for you to understand early in our understanding of worship, is that because you fell in Adam, you were unable to worship God. One of the greatest tragedies of all time, now that's capital A and capital T, all time, One of the great tragedies of this is that man is the only creature that was created in the image of God. Man is truly the highest of the created order. And the fact that this image bearer of God was so quickly plunged into sin, he was given over to adulterous worship. Men was given over to self-pleasure. Man was man was given over to seeking his own advantage and his own gains and his own pleasures over and against his love of and his loyalty to God. That's what it means to be an adulterous worshiper. Um, Look at Hosea 4, 
We'll look at Hosea 4.13, and then we'll look at Hosea 5.6. We went through the prophecy of Hosea, and a number of times we identified worshiping people, people making sacrifices, people claiming their, their, their homage to God. But look at Hosea 4.13 with me. They offer sacrifices on the mountaintops. Who is the they? These are the children of the tribes of Israel. These aren't a people, a pagan people who don't know who the Creator is and who don't know who Adam and Eve is and have no idea who God is, but they offer sacrifices on mountaintops and burn incense on the hills under the oaks, poplars and terebinths because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters commit harlotry and your brides commit adultery. This was false worship they were practicing on the mountaintops, the people of Israel. It's because of sin that's dwelling in the hearts of men. Look at Hosea 5.6. With their flocks and their herds, they shall go to seek the Lord. And does your Bible spell capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D? That's what your Bible says. Who are they going to seek? Jehovah. They're going to seek Yahweh. In Hosea 5, 6, with their flocks and herds, they shall go seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. They're still going about their practice of, of seeking him, of worshiping him. They don't even know who he is anymore. False worship is always a religious activity. False worship always includes, if, if not the name of God directly, your name for God. People will say Jehovah is our God or Yahweh is our Savior in places of false worship around the world for centuries. False worship isn't something for pagans like you picture pagans, the the heathen tribes of, of Africa or of India. That's that's also a false worship. But it's not a pagan-only error. And if you were to do a little survey in your own mind of how Scripture speaks about false worship and about who Scripture is correcting for false worship, who does Scripture correct for false worship? It corrects people who have the Word of God. It corrects people who know who He is and know His ordinances and know His commands. Scripture speaks mountains and mountains of correction towards those people who call themselves by His name and are false worshipers. One of the first points I want you to realize is that worship is not sensual. So make a little note and write to yourself, worship is not sensual. In our day, people will very often change their church, or sometimes they'll say, I'm going to change the place where we worship, or we're going to go to this other church instead because the music is better. Many, many people very frequently will go from one place to another because they say, I like the worship there. And <clears throat> worship is not sensual, but for many, worship is a state of mind. For many people, worship is a state of mind. Worship is a feeling. It's an emotional experience. And therefore, we would call it sensual. What I mean by that is for many, and maybe for most, I don't have any statistics but for many, the experience of worship is an emotional experience. That means it's sensual. That means it is appealing to your senses of pleasure. And many people seem to think that when you feel close to God, and maybe in particular because of lyrics or melodies and the beauty of music and Occasionally, 
supplemented with drama or dancing. These people feel that they had good worship. They feel that it was excellent. People even say that, oh man, it was awesome worship. It was great worship because of how it felt and what they experienced while they were participating in it. It's most common in our day that the worship leader is a, a very beautiful person, pretty girl or a nice-looking man or maybe a group, an attractive-looking group of men and women with very, very beautiful singing voices. And they often speak words of, of spiritual adoration, consolation, and victory. And a person's assessment of what is taking place is, is assessed based on what they felt by participating in it. This is how people understand what worship is in our day and age. But I want you to remember, and we're going to spend a fair bit of time thinking about this, but worship is for God. And it's not a sensual experience. Worship is something between the worshiper Sometimes we would call this person the supplicant, a person who is asking or beseeching or seeking. It is something between them and their God. And so our study is going to be primarily concerned examining worship that is biblical and, and true worship. I have a few pictures and a couple of things I want you to look at with me now that you heard some of these introductions, there's some pictures we have here that hopefully aren't going to be too hard to see. The reason I want, to see, want you to see this is because it's not always easy to discern what we're talking about here. And this particular example will help you. Now, you're looking at what many people would call a worship service here. I'm going to mention to you two names before I click play here. There's a person named Matt Maher, I believe that's how you pronounce his name, and a, and a lady named Audrey Assad. Those two people are very, very famous worship leaders in the, in the world today, and they're, they're doing the, the, the leading and the worshiping here. Now, see if you can hear the words of what of what they're singing what they're saying Pardon me? From Mary. Mary. Blessed be Mary, the great mother of God. The very beginning of this scene there, if you close your eyes for a second, on the right hand of the stage, there was a group of about six men. And at the beginning of this thing, there, there were some very, very bright lights kind of highlighting what they were doing there were the priests. This is a Catholic worship service, and they're doing what's called the Eucharist in this service. That's, that's a Catholic term for communion. And the reason I wanted you to see this is, number one, at least in, in my view, the singing is beautiful. I like this singing. I think it's very, very beautiful. I think it's very attractive to me, and it, it gives me a sense of, of, of peacefulness and, and beauty. Matt Mayer, is a, he, he, he's on every Christian radio station, probably in the world. He's a very, very popular worship leader, but he's a Catholic. I don't know about Audrey Assad in terms of I'm not sure what her, you know, quote-unquote claim to faith is. I did a little bit of research on her yesterday, and um, I heard her speaking, you know, very, very coarse language in an interview, and... Um, so here's my point. Here's my point. 
When we listen to Matt Maher sing an evangelical song that that comports with what we believe to be doctrinally true, should he be leading you and I in worship when he is occasionally leading leading worship? I, I, I don't want you to think that, that music is worship. Don't make that mistake that music is worship. We're going to attempt to undo that in this in this series. But we heard he and, and this lady singing about... Um, Really, their adoration of Mary and Joseph and the Holy Spirit and Jesus, they're, they're, they're mixing them all together. I want you to realize that you and I need to be very careful in identifying what we think it means to worship. A few years ago, I, I would have easily been uh, inclined to think that that singing these songs with great words is all that would really matter. Are the words good? Well, who, who, is, who is the person leading you in that singing? Who's the person who, who wrote this song? Who is, who's the congregation that they represent? That's a really important question. Who, 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 who are these people? The other concepts about worship in this Century, we have a lot of evangelicals going to what they think is an older form of worship. Very often it'll involve candles. Very often it'll involve creating a, a space that appears a certain way. Usually the lights are a little bit low. Sometimes the, the smell of the place is enhanced, maybe by the candles or maybe by incense. These are all sensual um, measures to give you a sense of pleasure and of joy from the experience of it. But this isn't how God has instructed his people to worship. Worship, according to the Baptist confession that we've been studying, chapter 22 of the confession, I'm going to read you the, the first paragraph of the London Baptist Confession that speaks about worship. And I just thought this would be helpful to very early on in this to give you some contrast. What would we be comparing biblical worship to? If, if Mike is right that, that this stuff isn't worship, what, what would be biblical worship? So let me just read you a couple sentences here. It says, The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. That means it didn't come from you. It is instituted by God of himself. And so limited by his own revealed will, listen, that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. The last phrase says, nor any other way that is not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. That's why one of the the first descriptions I gave to you when we started is, is we're going to be investigating what is called the regulative principle of worship. Or in other words, is biblical worship something that God has regulated, both positive and things that you would do, and and negatively? Has God described to Christians what they do so clearly that to do something beyond that would be to go too far? Yes. When men begin to invent, when men begin to innovate, they're doing their own thing. They're, they're, they're acting from their own intuitions. God has made himself and his will known. And just bringing yourself back into the context of, of Adam and Eve and thinking about what they knew they were supposed to do, we can, in, 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 a, in a real rudimentary way, we can say, look, their life was given to them, what they could do. What was their first innovation? 
Well, it really wasn't even an innovation. Eve looked at something that was told to her was appealing to eat. It looked good to eat was how the, the, the temptation was put forth to Eve. You see the application of sensuality there even? I, I don't necessarily mean sexual only when I say sensuality. Our culture has made sensuality only have sexual connotations. But when something is appealing to your eyes, that's sensual. So Eve was given this sensual temptation to leave God's instruction. Man needs to take his cues in his direction, not from intuition. Another example of that, just very briefly, we're going to look at a number of them in, in, in more detail, but think for a second about Cain. Cain brought an offering. This is one aspect of worship. When you bring your offering, that is an aspect of worship. When you bring your sacrifice, it is an aspect of worship. Now, when Cain brought his offering, was he bringing this offering to a false god? He was bringing it to Jehovah God. He was bringing it to the same God that his brother was bringing an offering to. So we can't accuse him of being a pagan worshiper, can we? He brought an offering, and no matter what you think about what he knew beforehand or not, most of us would say he knew what he should have brought. The, 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 the scriptures say his brother was a prophet, which may have been part of Cain's rejection of bringing the right offering. In other words, if, if my little brother says, hey, big brother, we're going to bring an offering to God and you've got to bring it like this. This is what God has told me. It's not uncommon for some older brothers to reject their younger brothers out of pride. All that aside, God tells Cain what offering to bring, doesn't he? He corrects him. What does he think about the correction that God tells to him? He's not interested in God telling him what to do. And so we see his worship is false worship. We see his worship is more about his own satisfaction, more about him accomplishing his goals and ideals. He's not that interested in actually pleasing God and what we want to learn, what we want to establish is that God is to be pleased in our worship. We're seeking to know him and to please him in truth. We're going to look at Leviticus chapter 9 together, so please find Leviticus chapter 9. And as you're finding Leviticus chapter 9, we're going to look at some examples of wrong worship in some of these Old Testament passages. And and the comparison I want you to make is, is that Israel, in so many instances, is a, a type of the church. That is, the, the New Covenant church is a congregation of mixed people. We are Jews and Gentiles brought into the congregation by the death of Christ, whereas under the Old Covenant, you are made part of the covenant people um, through your relation to Abraham. So we're going to see some uh, example of how a person either is in favor with God or is out of favor with God by his approach to worship. And so what we see in Leviticus 9, we're going to read from 23. If you look at verse 23, it says, Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and they came out and they blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people and fire came out from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So we just see uh, a little picture of the awe of those who had seen and what had just taken place. And God had very we would say demonstrably, God had uh, exhibited his receiving and his taking of this offering really in a, in a supernatural way. But then look at verse 1. Here's some sons. It says, Nadab and Abihu. 
sons of Aaron each took his censer, and, and you guys maybe remember what a censer is. Sometimes we, we've seen pictures of them, so my understanding of it is it's a bronze uh, bowl of sorts that, that probably even has a, a lid on it, and the censer is where you would burn incense in a, in a worship ceremony. So each one of them took his censer and put fire in it and that's what you would use to light the incense and then put incense on it and offered profane fire before the Lord. The word could also be strange. They offered strange fire or in other words, not prescribed fire. They brought something that was profane, not something that had been instructed. They offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them, it says. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. Leviticus 16 gives us a little bit of insight. We don't need to turn there, but I was just going to tell you that um, the only time to, to bring this, this incense would have been on the Day of Atonement. These, these men acted of their own accord. They did do something that is prescribed in worship under Old Covenant worship. They did do a thing that had been described and prescribed, but they weren't the ones to do it. And so God killed them. God killed them. Moses gave the interpretation. Remember, Moses is a a prophet. And he says, this is what the Lord spoke, saying... And he instructed them. He, he brought them to the scripture they had to know and they had to apply in order to understand why these men were put to death. Those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. Now, how do we know that the men Nadab and Abihu did not consider God to be holy? Well, they, they innovated their worship. They did something God did not ask them to do. They thought, oh, wow, look at that. Did you see the, the flames that came out and took that offering? Wow. Oh, let's just praise God and His holiness. And they, they went and got their censers and they, they got them prepared. And they, they began to do their work of, of worship. And you in your own heart, one by one of you, you in your heart could picture maybe I would want to join in the celebration too with them. Maybe I would want to praise God with him for that demonstration of his power and and for my awe of seeing his acceptance of that offering. And, And I would have done that. But why shouldn't they have done it? Moses told us why. Moses told us why. Those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy and before all people, I must be glorified. The end of verse 1 says they had done that which the Lord had not commanded them. So this is a negative example. This is a a very, very strong negative example here in Leviticus chapter 9 and chapter 10. One offering was brought before the Lord and, and wonderfully accepted, gloriously accepted. Another offering was brought before the Lord and the Lord put these men to death. When worship is worshiper conceived, when worship is something that the worshiper invents, when worship is something the person innovates himself, this estranges man from his God and it proves he doesn't fear God. It proves he doesn't know God. Now look at Psalm 51:17 with me for just a moment. It'll be nice for us to contrast this 
this example in Leviticus with a very positive example on the other hand. Psalm 51 and verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. That's Psalm 51:17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Now, if for some reason these men did feel compelled to worship the Lord, and yet they recognized that they actually were not in a position to do anything for the crowd, they wouldn't lead in any way. They, they could have just bowed their heads and given thanks. They could have just said, who are we, God, to have you being with us? How kind of you, God, to not have <laughs> killed me in the fire you used to take the sacrifice. You left us here and you let us see your glory and we've survived to see it. A contrite heart is a, a low heart. A contrite heart is a humble heart. Contrite heart is not a boastful heart. A contrite heart is knows that he is in the presence of, of greatness and holiness and that he is unworthy. That's what a contrite heart is. So there are sacrifices, of course. We know that God loves a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God does not despise these things. When you come before God in prayer, and, and I hope you're learning to do it more, I hope that your, your life and your knowledge of God and your, your walk with, your discipleship with God is a life where you are learning to come before Him more and more frequently in contrition. What that means is you're needy. What that means is you depend on him. I hope you're learning to bring your neediness to him. Or in some cases, sometimes we're a little surprised to see that we don't feel very needy. Sometimes we feel like we're having a little bit of success. Things are going well and you get a little bit big hearted, maybe big headed. When you come before the Lord, Bring yourself before the Lord in contrition. You could say, Lord, I'm starting to get a big head. But I know whatever favor I've had has come from your hand, Lord. Whatever I have has been from you, Lord. Please forgive me for feeling like I have accomplished this myself. Like these good things have something to do with anything other than your grace. God, come before the Lord in contrition. I want you to look at 1 Samuel chapter 15 with me as well. This is another negative example for Samuel 15 verse 1. Samuel also said to Saul, who is the king, Samuel says, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. How he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have, and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So the passage here begins with the prophet asserting, God asserting himself and his authority and his power to the king 
saying, King, you're king because I've made you king. Therefore, king, do what I prescribe for you to do against Amalek. Amalek had shown themselves to be an enemy to the nation of Israel on numerous times. So the king, King Saul, is to be God's arm of punishment. He is to exercise this work of, verse 3, attack Amalek, destroy all they have, do not spare them, kill man, woman, infant, nursing child, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. Now look with me down to verse 8. Look with me all the way down to verse 8. And listen to what Saul did. He, that is Saul, also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lamb, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel... And he cried out to the Lord all night. So what did we find the king doing? Well, the king was given particular instructions of what he was supposed to do as God's arm of revenge against this nation of Amalek. And Saul decided that he couldn't bring himself to kill King Agag. Now, what do you think his reasons were? He he ends up offering an explanation. I thought we should just read this together. Look at verse 12. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. So the prophet goes to meet the king. It was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel. And indeed, he set up a monument for himself, and he has gone on around, passed by, gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I perform the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep? Basically, the prophet hears these first words from the king who has, in his mind, done some great things for the Lord, but he ignored part of the Lord's instruction. And so the prophet asks him, "Um, why do we hear all of the sheep? What's all this about? I hear it in my ears. And I hear the lowing of the oxen. Verse 15. Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. What is Saul's what are the words of Saul's excuse? His, his goal is to offer a sacrifice. His goal is to worship. That's his explanation, whether or not that was in his heart the day before. Who knows? But maybe now he's looking for a way out of it. No matter what we read in black and white, he says, Oh, I spared them to sacrifice. I've kept these to worship. He's the king. What kinds of authority should a king have? We would think a king has as much or more authority than anybody in the land if he's the king. What God is he professing to love and to worship? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. He's going to bring his offerings. He's going to bring the best 
of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice. Samuel said in verse 16, Be quiet. I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. So Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? Did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission in which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took the plunder, sheep, and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Samuel said, listen, listen carefully, church. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. He had already demonstrated his stubbornness by arguing with the prophet when the prophet began to explain to him that he had done wrong. But Samuel finishes saying, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. He goes on. I want you to just read two more verses with me. Verse 25. Listen to how, listen to how uh, Saul continues. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. He, he seems to progress with some contrition. You and I would think, well, that would be the best way to go forward. At least he's repenting. At least he's lowering himself. Verse 26, Samuel said to Saul, I will not return to you with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. I wanted you to notice, to take note, that the king lost his favor over this one error. There wasn't a way back to recover what he had lost by failing in this simple act of obedience. I do think that sometimes we give a special pass in our century to pastors in particular, And then to those who are leading, maybe your worship leaders, your people that you admire or respect as leaders. This man being the king certainly would have qualified as a leader along those lines. But what we really want to begin to learn to discern ourselves is is what is truly the will of God? How do men and women truly worship our God. Because if you're fine with it, because your leader's fine with it, because your leader said so, that just makes you complicit with his guilt if he's wrong. So when I begin to suggest to you that you go down this road and you blindly follow a pastor who is being a fool or who is being rebellious, It would be your responsibility to say, Mike, the the scripture plainly says we, we can't do this. You can't do this. Because we're responsible to the creator. We're responsible to the one we've been created to worship. I wanted to use these examples to show you these really huge examples that took place on behalf of the nation of Israel under the terms of the Old Covenant were these scenes of worship, these national occasions of worship are illustrations of national rebellion.
There are pictures of national uh, blasphemy in their turning away from our Lord. Next week, we will uh, look at some passages in the New Testament to, to continue to refine and, and help us in our understanding of, of what biblical worship really is. So please bow your heads with me in prayer for a moment, and then we will uh, stand and sing another song together. Oh, great God. Oh, how grievous it is to have been in Samuel's shoes. How grievous it is to watch a a king grow large in his own mind and in his own heart, dear God, and how easily I could see myself being swayed with my success. Oh God, teach us to be humble. Teach us to know you, dear God, to walk gently before you, to walk humbly before you, dear God, because we do love you, Lord. There's only one God of heaven. There's only one prescriber of of truth and falseness. And we would like to walk before you, Lord. Cause the hearts of these men and women, of our young people, cause their hearts to be soft before you, Lord. We don't want to be led astray by our own rebelliousness because we love you, Lord. We know that you and you alone are God and Savior and Lord. So help us and, and hear, our, hear our repentances, God. Hear our confessions, Lord, and strengthen us by the knowledge of your truth and by, by the strength of our knowledge of your word and our willingness to walk in it, Lord. Strengthen us, please. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Okay. Closing song. Number three hundred and twenty. Trust and obey.
you guys have a great week. May uh, you have a good day in prayer tomorrow on our World Prayer Meeting Day. And we'll see you on Wednesday.